0: A new study has revealed a big increase in police seizures of the dangerous opioid fentanyl.
1: Fentanyl delivers a very powerful high, but it's also very brief. Sometimes this high just lasts for a few minutes. So that means people sometimes can take fentanyl 20 or 30 times a day.
0: It's Thursday, March 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get the story from southern Ukraine on volunteers helping people who fled Russian-controlled territory. Also, gas prices in the U.S. will probably fall as oil companies increase supply, but ramping up production takes time.
2: The main reason it doesn't happen overnight is because of the thousands of workers who were let go during the downturn, which was not that long ago. Well, they're gone, most of them.
3: Also,
0: you'll get a review of the new Marvel movie, Morbius. It is 4.01. First,
4: this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration's trying to offer some relief to motorists who are now paying on average more than $4 for a gallon of regular gasoline. The president's ordering the release of an unprecedented one million barrels of oil a day for the next six months from the nation's strategic petroleum
5: reserve. Biden is also invoking the Defense Production Act. I'm issuing a directive to strengthen our clean energy economy. I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to secure American supply chains for the critical materials that go into batteries for electric vehicles and the storage of renewable energy, lithium, graphite, nickel, and so much more.
4: U.S. inflation remains the highest it's been in some 40 years. Tomorrow, the government will reveal how the labor market has fared in March when it releases its big monthly employment report. The oil cartel known as OPEC Plus will stick to its current plan to increase oil production gradually. NPR's Brittany Cronin reports the group is staying the course despite a recent surge in oil prices. In
6: a short virtual meeting, OPEC plus decided to continue increasing oil production by around 400,000 barrels per day, as widely expected. That means OPEC is sticking to a previous agreement to gradually increase production as the global economy continues to recover from the pandemic. The Biden administration had hoped that OPEC would increase its oil production a lot more to help relieve oil and gasoline prices. But OPEC members are limited in how much production they can add anyway, and some countries have struggled to meet the existing agreement. Oil prices spiked after Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia is a member of OPEC+. Brittany Cronin, NPR News.
4: Ukrainian officials say most Russian troops have now left the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine, NPR's Greg Myrie tells us Russian forces seized the plant at the beginning of the war.
7: While the Russian forces have been in control of Chernobyl for the past month, Ukrainian workers continue their job of monitoring the plant for any safety issues. Ukraine's nuclear agency says in a statement that two columns of Russian troops have left the plant, leaving only a small number behind. At the Pentagon, a senior U.S. official describes the move as part of a broader pullback of Russian troops from areas around the capital, Kiev, and other parts of northern Ukraine. The Chernobyl plant, site of the world's worst nuclear disaster in 1986, is about 60 miles north of Kiev and just a few miles south of the border with Belarus. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
4: A spokesperson says CIA Director William Burns has tested positive for the coronavirus. Burns will be working from home, quarantining for five days. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 550 points, 1.5% at the close. At 34,678, the Nasdaq was down 221 points, 1.5%. It's NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts State Senate has unanimously given its approval to a bill that bans discrimination based on natural hairstyles. Today's vote comes a week after the House approved the legislation. WBUR's Steve Brown has more.
8: In her very first speech as a state senator, Boston's Lydia Edwards pointed to her own natural hair and said she used to spend a lot of money to cover up what naturally came out of her own head. She said the vote tells black women how they present themselves is beautiful and they will not be expected to change their looks.
9: You must understand what systemic racism does is not just prohibit economic opportunity in jobs or prohibit you access to housing. It diminishes the soul. It diminishes yourself of who you are because of something you cannot control.
8: The bill will soon be sent to Governor Baker for his signature. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: The Marine, the family of a Marine fatally stabbed outside a bar in Boston is planning to file a lawsuit against the establishment. Daniel Martinez was killed March 19th near the Sons of Boston, not far from Faneuil Hall. The pub's bouncer, Alvaro LaRama, has been charged with his murder. Manuel Martinez is the father of Daniel Martinez.
10: That loss of separation that you're never going to see them again here on this earth That's where our faith comes in, and we have uh, great faith, and we believe that one day we're going to be reunited.
0: The family's attorney says the goal of the lawsuit involves learning more about the altercation and the bar's hiring practices. The bar has not responded to WBUR's request for comment on the planned lawsuit. There's no word yet on the plan for debates in the Democratic primary for governor. Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Maura Healey says she is committed to a pair of forums before the party's convention in June and to televised debates between the convention and the September primary. The gubernatorial campaign of state Senator Sonia Chang Diaz says it's reviewing the letter. Previously, it called for three debates before the convention. In sports, this afternoon in spring training, baseball, the Red Sox beat the Twins 4-3. to Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the New Jersey Devils. It is 63 degrees in Boston. Showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, some patchy fog, lows in the low 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers, and Friday's highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com.
12: Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles.
13: And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. There's disturbing new information out today about recent trends in drug use. A new study of police drug seizures shows there's been a massive increase in the traffic of pills that look like legitimate pharmaceuticals but actually contain illicit fentanyl. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi joins us. Hi, Martin. Hey Kelsey. So we've been hearing about the spread of fentanyl for at least a decade now. How much worse have things gotten?
1: Well, so this study was done by researchers who take part in something called the National Drug Early Warning System, and what they did is they looked at drug seizures by law enforcement, which is a usually a pretty good indirect measure of what's being sold because the cops do chemical tests on what's in the drugs. Mm. And they found that over the last four years, there's been a 50-fold increase in the number of pills that contain the powerful opioid fentanyl. That's 55.0 five, times more now than in early 2018. And if you want raw numbers, uh, what that means is the police almost 10 million of these pills last year
13: 50 that is a stunning figure are there any theories about why this is happening
1: Well, uh, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it's cheap to make, it's easy to uh, smuggle. Uh, A very heavy user spends only about $70 a day uh, to consume that drug, but there's something else here. Uh, Fentanyl delivers a very powerful high, but it's also very brief. Sometimes this high just lasts for a few minutes, so that means people are consuming it a lot more frequently. Uh, We see this increased frequency in all forms of the drug, people ingesting it, smoking it, or injecting it, and I saw that for myself recently when I was shadowing a Philadelphia transit police officer. His name is Alex Byers. He works in an area with a lot of drug use and he told me it's been grim to see how much more frequently users there are injecting themselves now as fentanyl takes over. You know, we're we're seeing a lot of individuals who need a lot of medical attention because their flesh is getting eaten away from uh, injecting themselves uh, almost to the point where they have to get their legs, arms amputated.
13: Wow. Has that been confirmed by drug abuse experts, that people consume more fentanyl more often?
1: It has. I talked to Caleb Banta Green, who studies drug use epidemiology at the University of Washington. He wasn't part of this study, but he told me that people sometimes can take fentanyl 20 or 30 times a day. Imagine a super
14: steep, super herky-jerky roller coaster. That's what you're on if you're a regular user of fentanyl. That's a lot worse than a heroin where you might be using four or six times a day.
13: This study highlights the growth in fentanyl pills, especially, so why is that distinction significant?
1: Well, the authors of the study are worried about the fact that these pills look so much like real prescription drugs, like oxycodone, and some people might assume that they're safer because they're pills, but Banta Green says you still don't know how strong one of these fake pills is gonna be, and because you're taking it so often, you're just increasing your odds of an overdose. And you also have to remember that people aren't just swallowing the pills. One thing that's become really common on the West Coast for instance, as you see people smoking crushed pills off of sheets of tinfoil. In Seattle, for example, now you see scraps of tinfoil where you used to see spent needles on the ground.
13: So more frequent use, more odds of an overdose. Why would people prefer these fentanyl pills to other drugs?
1: Well, there's a lot of debate right now about whether people know what they're taking, whether um, it's still accurate to say the pills are not laced with fentanyl, as if it's being sneaked in. It is true that some users may not know what's in there, but Caleb Green told me that he's uh, surveyed drug users, and by now, most of them know that they are consuming fentanyl. These blue pills are seen as fentanyl in the street. And he says the reason people take them is that fentanyl has just become so dominant in the market. It's simply the cheapest and easiest alternative for an addict. So they take the pills despite the risks.
13: That's amazing. NPR's Martin Costi. thank you.
1: You're welcome.
12: One of the biggest names in Latin music has decided to call it quits at the ripe old age of 45. Saludo familia, aquí grita Daddy Yankee. Esta carrera, que ha sido un maratón,
15: al fin veo la meta.
12: Reggaeton star Daddy Yankee announced what he called his retirement last week in a video released on social media. He also announced one last album and one final tour later this year. But, you know, retirements, they're not always clear-cut in pop music. And here to help sort all of this out for us is Felix Contreras, the host of NPR Music's Alt-Latino podcast. Hey, Felix.
15: Hey, Elsa. What's happening? (laughs)
12: Can you just first put into context for us, like, why the retirement of Daddy Yankee is like a seismic event in Latin music?
15: Okay, I think first people need to understand that reggaeton could be one of the most popular forms of Latin music ever. I mean, in this age of streaming and YouTube, the streams and clicks on this music number in the billions. And Ramon Luis Ayala Rodriguez helped launch that popularity as a pioneer in developing the genre as it left its roots in Panama and made its way to his native Puerto Rico in the mid to late 90s.
12: Right. And he had like one of the first breakout hits featuring the reggaeton beat, right?
15: Yes. Around 2004, after a decade as a rough underground expression of marginalized Puerto Ricans, that infectious beat broke through to the Latin mainstream by way of his track, Gaso. And for a while, man, it was everywhere.
12: I'm already dancing, Felix.
15: That's what makes it so popular, man. It's a killer (laughs) dance group. It's a dance music first and foremost. And between the 2000s and 2017, Daddy Yankee's career was a steady climb of hit records on his own. Tons of collaborations with other reggaeton superstars and seemingly endless tours of it first Latin America, then the US and then Europe. Millions and millions of album sales, both physical products and digital sales. And not only did he become one of the most successful Latin music pop stars out there, he also helped create a demand for reggaeton that went global.
12: Totally. And you said that Daddy Yankee he had a, like all these hit records between the early two thousands and twenty seventeen. What happened in twenty seventeen? Why are you being so specific there?
15: this happened
12: (laughs) (laughs) the song i will never get tired of never
15: (laughs) and a whole bunch of other people around the world oh my god
12: i have choreographed so many dance moves in my head listening to this song
15: You know, the crazy thing about this song's success is that Daddy Yankee was a hardcore reggaetonero, and he teamed up with Luis Fonsi, who was more of a pop balladeer. And what they created was really like capturing lightning in a bottle. I mean, not only did it become one of your favorite songs, it became one of the biggest selling, streamed, and viewed songs of all time in any language. In any language? In any language. It's like the biggest thing out there. It was a major, major game changer. And more importantly, it changed the concept of crossover because it was the first time that what is called the general market or the non-Spanish speaking audience adopted a song in Spanish and lifted it to anthemic proportions. And I checked this week to prepare for our conversations and the YouTube views on that song are up to nearly 8 billion. That's billion oh, with a B, holy. right?
12: So as reggaeton has gotten more and more popular as a genre, like did it start showing up in other forms of music?
15: Curiously, yes. I mean, that beat, there's a beat. It goes boom, da-boom, bah, boom, yeah. da-boom, bah, boom, da-boom. That form just really took off, and other musicians, other genres, just started adding a little bit to it, Just and sometimes even the essence of it. I mean, I play in a Beatles music cover band with Latin rhythm. You do? And I, Oh, my God! And even <laughs> I threw in a little bit of reggaeton on one of our songs. That's awesome! Okay, but one of the most recent examples is from... The Spanish vocalist from Spain, Rosalia, she's got a great new record out and she's got a song called Chicken Teriyaki. Check it out.
16: Yeah. I hear
12: it. I mean, it sounds like reggaeton to me.
15: Yeah. I mean, that, it's that dance beat, man. It's that, yeah. above all, that seems to always have been one of the most successful things about genres, styles, fads, etc. It's that dance beat. It's got to have a dance beat. Go back as far back as swing music in the forties. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. it's dance. you can dance to it, yeah. it's going to get popular. Totally. Okay.
12: So you're saying Daddy Yankee wasn't just, um, like a mega superstar. He became kind of this agent of cultural change.
15: Correct. I mean, it's hard not to overstate just how profoundly Despacito changed the record business and also how Latin music and culture was viewed around the world because it was no longer something exotic in a foreign language. I mean, teenagers everywhere from France to Iowa were singing that song.
12: Including some Chinese women in New York City at the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all of this happened before Daddy Yankee turned 45 years old. I mean, I am older than him. This puts my life accomplishments in total perspective now. <laughs> Tell me so, about it. <laughs> what, does, what does retirement mean for someone like Daddy Yankee?
15: Okay, he just released what he calls his last album. It's called Legend Daddy. Okay, here's a little bit of that. Hey, so you're not I mean, he's saying, I am a legend. I'm back (laughs) in my career, right? I mean, he's putting things in perspective from his perspective. Yeah. He's also set to start a massive final tour later this year. And he hasn't said much beyond that. I mean, my guess, he's gonna do whatever he wants, man. I mean, maybe a string of singles instead of dealing with the pressure of a full album. Maybe a series of one-off shows instead of a grueling world tour with all the trappings of a pop extravaganza, dancers, stage stuff, all that stuff. He's created several philanthropic organizations. He's been involved with the video game creation. I mean, you know, a guy this creative just might even change the meaning of retirement.
12: Totally. Well, he can do whatever he wants. Exactly. Felix Contreras is the host of the Alt Latino podcast from NPR Music. Thank you so much, Felix.
15: Thank you. Thank you.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on All Things Considered, you'll get the story on why turning on the domestic oil spigot is difficult. In business news, shares in a Cambridge-based pharmaceutical company fell 14% in trading today. The decline in Amlex pharmaceutical stock comes one day after an FDA advisory panel voted against recommending the company's ALS treatment for FDA approval. Amlex says that panel's decision is non-binding and it does still hope to win approval by the FDA in June. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow was down 550 points or one and a half percent at 34,678. The Nasdaq closed down 221 points, one and a half percent at 14,220. The S&P 500 closed down 72 points at 4530. Marketplace will have a full range of business news coming up at 630. It's 419.
11: Funding for WBOR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
0: It is 63 degrees in Boston, some showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, some patchy fog, and lows in the low 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers. Friday's highs in the low 60s. On Saturday, sunshine and highs in the mid 50s. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI.
12: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And
17: I'm Kelsey Snell.
13: Across Ukraine, people are volunteering to help in the war effort. Some are signing up for the security forces. Some are preparing meals. Others are helping people who evacuate from Russian-controlled territory to find transportation and places to sleep. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from a warehouse near the front lines. It's a place where Ukrainian volunteers are doing a different kind of work.
18: On the ground floor, in what used to be a car repair shop in Zaporizhia, in eastern Ukraine, men are cutting pieces of scrap metal into strips. They then weld them together to make protective plates for bulletproof vests. A welder, who gives his name as Alexei Simchenko, describes how the pieces of metal are formed into a breastplate. Across the room, sparks fly as other people grind the edges of the plates. Vasil Busharov, who before the start of the war in February was an event planner, now coordinates the volunteers who show up at this warehouse each morning. Busharov says they're using metal from junked cars for the vests.
19: They use cars, old cars we make, and it is work. It is work. Uh, I can show you we shut in all the plates and have good result.
18: They even brought in some soldiers to shoot at the body armor and make sure it works. Up a steep set of stairs from the metal shop, a dozen sewing machines surround a large work table. Here, women sew the canvas vests that will hold the steel plates. Elena Grekova, a local fashion designer who usually sells her clothes in boutiques in Kyiv, oversees producing the bulky camouflage vests. Had she ever designed a bulletproof vest before this? <laughs> I'm they say so. Never. <laughs> no, only clothes and, and uh, shoes. Grekova says her team produces between 20 to 25 bulletproof vests every day. The warehouse also serves as a hub for volunteers who drive into Russian-controlled areas less than an hour from here, near the besieged city of Mariupol. They're trying to evacuate people who can't get out on their own. This place is also a distribution point for humanitarian supplies for evacuees. There are rooms filled with donated canned food, pasta, shampoo, and diapers. One problem for many of the people emerging from the intense fighting, Busharov says, is auto glass.
19: There is a special
18: division here of guys who help
20: to fix their car windows because almost all the cars that get in here
18: have broken windows. Russian forces have been bombing areas heavily before moving in with ground troops. The bombs can blow out all the windows of any car parked near the explosion. So the mechanics here help patch up the evacuees' vehicles and replace their windscreens if they can. Most of the people fleeing Mariupol and other areas that have been pounded by the Russian invasion don't stay here. Many want to get as far away from the front line as possible, some even saying their goal is to get all the way to Poland. Busharov says hundreds of volunteers show up every day at this center. Mechanics work next to business consultants packing sandbags. Teachers coordinate delivery schedules.
19: Yeah,
18: you can uh, see the big difference between people
20: who are afraid and people who are eager to help. And this time I have seen so many people that will, they will probably become my best friends in future. They are doing incredible things here.
18: For him, he says, this war has brought out the best in a lot of people. Jason Bobian, NPR News, in eastern Ukraine.
12: High gas prices have everyone from truckers to politicians demanding more domestic oil production. While drilling is up, oil production in this country is still down from three years ago. But as Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, turning that around just isn't going to be as easy as some might have you believe.
7: Oil is expensive now, but Dick Schremer, president of Bear Oil near Tiny Peck, Kansas, says there was a time early in the pandemic when he literally could not give the stuff away.
21: The oil that they took that day from us, they charged us $38 a barrel to take our oil.
7: Of course, nobody knew how long the losses would go on, and domestic production plunged 20% as small companies folded or cut staff. Companies also shut down active wells, nearly 5,000 in Kansas alone. Tremors standing next to one of them today in a field south of Wichita. The oil thousands of feet below this ancient pump jack is now worth more than a hundred dollars a barrel, but pumping it out will take time and lots of money. You know, this well probably cost me twelve thousand dollars to get up and running. Idle wells corrode. For most to come back into production, they'll need repairs. And the price of hardware and chemicals used to get oil out of the ground has shot up along with the price of crude. I just ordered
21: a new truck loaded pipe out of Houston and that one Truckload of two inch tubing it cost me $75,000. Last year, that would have probably cost me $25,000
7: to $35,000. That's big money to small operators like Dick Schremer. While big players like ExxonMobil and BP operate wells producing hundreds or thousands of barrels a day, hundreds of small companies work on the margins running low producing stripper wells in states like Kansas, Ohio, and Texas. And Mickey Thompson, past president of the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association, says many of those companies face
2: a serious challenge finding employees. The main reason it doesn't happen overnight is because of the thousands of workers who were let go during the downturn, which was not that long ago. Well, they're gone, most of them. And those remaining are putting in a lot of overtime.
7: Close to a riverbank near Oxford, Kansas, two men labor to bring a 1940s era well back into production. Rank crude, reeking of skunk and diesel fuel, sloshes out of an old pipe, splattering the workers as they toil in the mud, slinging heavy, four foot long wrenches and manhandling 200 pound sections of pipe.
21: Everything's heavy and dirty and slimy.
7: Dick Schlemmer says workers like these guys are a vanishing
21: breed. This is pretty tough work. Gets out in all the elements and the heat and the cold and work, you know, 8, 10, 12 hour days.
7: And there are just a lot of people who don't want to do that anymore. And it makes for lots of delays. Robert Wagner, who runs Dan D. Drilling in Lamont, Oklahoma, has 20 semi-trucks outfitted with all the equipment it takes to drill new oil wells. Of those 20 rigs he's able to staff, just two, two. And then only partially.
14: And so we're not able to meet the demand. It's not just us here in Lamont Oklahoma. home. Right? It's everybody in Odessa and everybody in Louisiana. All of them are having the same problem.
7: So oil companies wanting to drill new wells have to wait. And while regulation isn't much of a hurdle in this part of the country, financing can be. And Mickey Thompson says there's one other thing checking a rush to ramp up production. Common sense.
2: Because there's no guarantee that the price of oil is going to be anywhere near where it is today, next month. So they spend all this money and then the price drops, could drop dramatically.
7: Domestic production is still down about 10% from its all-time peak in 2019. But it's on the upswing. This well, chugging away just beyond a leafy front yard in Belle Plaine, Kansas, came back online this year producing a paltry barrel and a quarter of oil a day, enough to make about 25 gallons of gasoline. The U.S. Department of Energy forecasts that domestic oil producers will reach 2019 production levels sometime in the summer of next year. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, you'll get the story on how the first quarter of this year involved extreme volatility on Wall Street. Also, you'll hear about the concerns of extremism experts that a baseless QAnon conspiracy theory about pedophilia is gaining currency in the political right wing. That and more. Coming up on All Things Considered. It's 63 degrees in Boston, some showers and a chance of thunderstorms tonight, patchy fog, lows in the low 50s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers, Friday's highs in the low 60s.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mass Art Auction. Bidding is open on 325 works. Visit the exhibition in person and bid online. Learn more at massartauction.org. And the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Mahler's Third Symphony with Mezzo Susan Platts on April 8th. BostonPhil.org. You know, sometimes the promos just write themselves.
6: Definitely had to keep my nose to the grindstone and use all those small business owner skills of adaptation and outside-the-box
22: thinking. I'm Kai Rizdal, a small business flour mill operator. Next time on Marketplace, flour mill, Grindstone. Get it? Tonight at 6:30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
11: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Pentagon says it's not clear that Russia's convoy of military vehicles to Kyiv, which once stretched some 40 miles, even exists anymore after failing to accomplish its mission. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby.
7: The Ukrainians uh, put a stop to, the, to that convoy pretty quickly um, by, by being very nimble, um, knocking out bridges, hitting lead vehicles, stopping their movement. But I, I've, we've not seen an update on uh, on what uh, where those vehicles are or what they're doing at this point.
11: The sole convoy became a symbol of Russia's battlefield difficulties and had repeatedly been attacked by Ukrainian forces during the first weeks of the more than month-long invasion. Russian President Vladimir Putin told Italy's Prime Minister on a call, that conditions are not yet in place for a ceasefire in Ukraine or for a meeting between him and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky." And here Sylvia Pajoli has more. Prime Minister Mario Draghi spoke with Vladimir Putin about a ceasefire in Ukraine and Putin's demand that countries he deems, quote,
0: unfriendly pay for Russia's natural gas only in Russian currency. As for Putin's view, the time is not ripe for a ceasefire or a meeting with Zelensky. Draghi says the Ukrainian president's willingness to initiate peace has been total. Draghi noted the problem so far is Russia's government has shown no desire for peace. It was only the defense of Ukraine that slowed the invasion, said Draghi. As for gas supplies, he says Putin told him current contracts remain in force and Europeans will continue to pay in euros and dollars with conversion done by Russia. Silvia Podroli, NPR News, Rome.
11: Wall Street lower by the closing bell. All three major indices were down more than 1.5%. The Dow was down 550 points. The Nasdaq down 221 points. The S&P 500 down 72. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9
0: WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The head of a Massachusetts company that monitors wastewater for the coronavirus is calling for federal funding to expand that type of monitoring. Dr. Mariana Matus is CEO and co-founder of Cambridge-based BioBot Analytics. She testified before a congressional subcommittee today. The panel's looking at ways to prepare for the next phase of the pandemic. Dr. Matu says wastewater monitoring shows virus trends before problems show up in the population. If it
20: gave hospitals, especially in the Boston area where there's lots of awareness about this type of information, a two-week leading time to prepare for the peak. And it was equally useful to know when the peak would happen as well as to when it would end.
0: Matus is recommending that the federal government provide funding for states to conduct wastewater monitoring and standardize data collection methods. The average cost of heating oil in the state continues to rise. The latest survey, survey by the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources shows the average price at five sixteen a gallon. That's $0.29 cents a gallon higher than last week. Boston police shot a man in Jamaica Plain early this morning during a traffic stop. The shooting occurred just before 1 a.m. in the area of Morton Street near Shattuck Hospital. Acting Boston Police Commissioner Gregory Long says the 31-year-old suspect ran from the car during a traffic stop, then turned around and shot at police officers who returned fire. The suspect suffered life-threatening injuries. He will be arraigned When medically possible, the four officers involved in the shooting were not injured. Advocates for transparency in government are calling on the Governor's Council to reinstate live streams of council meetings. The Governor's Council stopped broadcasting the meetings online earlier this month. Counselors have cited budget and staffing challenges for the decision. Jeff Foster is executive director of the group Common Cause Massachusetts. He says keeping a live stream is a critical service to members of the public who may not be able to attend sessions in person.
10: Seniors' mobility issues, people with disabilities, parents with young children, and really the list goes on. And people deserve to know what their government is doing.
0: The Governor's Council reviews judicial appointments and members of the state's parole board. In sports, at the Garden tonight, the Bruins host the Devils. This afternoon in spring training baseball, the Red Sox beat the Twins 4-3. to It's 63 degrees in Boston, some showers and a chance of thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Culligan Water, since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. From NPR News, this is
13: All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. It has been one of the most volatile quarters on Wall Street in recent memory. Investors are nervous about markets and the economy, and there are fears about the risk of a recession. As the first quarter of 2022 comes to a close, NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain all of this volatility. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So walk us through what's been happening here.
10: Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine had a profound effect on markets. The Dow fell into a correction, so did the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ dropped more than 20% from its recent high into a bear market before stocks regained ground. On top of that, we've seen some incredible volatility in commodities prices. Yes, in oil, but also in wheat and metals like nickel. Hmm. And this happened when there was already a lot of nervousness about inflation. Prices surging on pretty much everything from food to clothing to cars, Well, prices have continued to climb, and we got the latest measure of that today. The inflation gauge the Federal Reserve likes to use showed prices have been rising at their fastest pace since 1982. The Fed has doubled down on its commitment to fighting inflation. It's already raising interest rates, started hiking them this month, for the first time since 2018, and that stands to have a big impact on markets and the economy. Gargi Chowdhury is an investment strategist at BlackRock, and she told me Wall Street is now gaming out what it would mean for the economy if the Fed were to decide to act even more aggressively going forward.
20: What might the impact on growth be in the
23: economy? What that might do to mortgage rates?
10: Well, the Fed is also wrestling with new economic uncertainty, the fallout from the war in Ukraine, including, also higher oil prices.
12: Yeah. Well, what has been the impact specifically from that surge in oil prices?
10: Oil prices have skyrocketed. You look at Brent crude, the international benchmark, and it went from around $80 a barrel to almost $140 a barrel. That's the highest it's been since 2008. Of course, this is hurting regular people. You've seen it at the gas pump. I've Mm -hmm. seen it at the gas pump. A gallon of regular now over 4.22 on average, according to AAA. That's a little less expensive than what it was earlier this month, but it's still high. And that's what led to this big announcement at the White House today. The administration saying it will release around a million barrels a day over the next six months from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to get more oil flowing, to try to push down prices. This is the biggest release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve ever. But it's going to take some time to see what effect that's going to have and if the effect is going to be temporary.
12: And what about the markets, David? Like, what do you think they're telling us right now?
10: You know, although we've seen the stock market recover since around mid March, there are a lot of unanswered questions still. Are these gains going to hold given what's happening in Ukraine, given the challenges the Fed faces, given how much prices have continued to go up? And the big worry is is the U.S. economy headed for a recession? Uh, one potential warning sign is the sell off that we've seen in the bond market recently. You know, traditionally, bonds are a pretty good indicator of the outlook for the economy. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're flashing some warning signs. There are a few positive trends I want to highlight. The labor market remains healthy. We're going to get new data on that on Friday, jobs data for the month of March. And then there are corporate profits, which have been pretty strong. And in the coming days, companies are going to give us new information on how they've navigated all these challenges. And they're going to share their forecasts for the months ahead. But all in all else, as we start the second quarter, a lot of uncertainty remains and markets are likely to remain volatile. Great. NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you.
13: The confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson have many asking why some Republican senators dwelled on her sentencing record in a small number of child pornography cases. Jackson's critics accused her of choosing more lenient sentences than the maximum punishment allowed. But extremism experts took it as a sign that a baseless QAnon narrative is creeping into the mainstream political right. NPR's Adet Youssef is covering this, and she joins me now. Hi, Adet. Hi. I should start by saying that many legal experts say Jackson's rulings were within the norm for similar cases decided by other federal judges.
6: Now, the QAnon narrative. Can you explain what it is and where it came from? So, Kelsey, the QAnon conspiracy theory is that, you know, Democrats and Hollywood elites are running a global child sex trafficking ring, all baseless, of course. Experts point to the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy of 2016 as maybe the immediate precursor to this. You know, you'll remember this was this false claim that Hillary Clinton and other high-ranking Democrats were running a child sex trafficking ring in the basement of a pizza parlor in D.C. And it led to violence. A man went there and he fired shots saying that he was there to save the children. Uh, But the truth is that weaponizing fears around child safety has long been in the toolkit of political movements, and it's very effective. So what is the history there? Well, Kelsey, I've seen this theme show up in white nationalist literature that dates back to the late 70s, where you'll see threads about young white girls being trafficked by Jews with powerful connections. Um, But it was also used in the early days of conservative coalition building, Juliana Martinez is a professor at American University, and she points to a campaign in 1977 to fight a gay rights ordinance in Dade County, Florida. And the person who led that campaign was a singer named Anita Bryant.
24: This was one of
16: the first times that she managed to successfully bring together Catholic and Baptist groups with conservative activists. Claiming that the passage of this law would enable homosexuals, as that's the term she used, to, quote, recruit young people. Right. And the moral panic created around this language generated so much panic that the the ordinance was retracted.
6: And Kelsey, we've seen that narrative continue to evolve today. You know, even though gay rights have progressed, we're seeing very similar rhetoric in the campaign now against trans rights. So if this has been a rallying cry for decades in the conservative right, why are extremism experts worried about it right now? Well, part of this is about language. You know, it's common today on far-right social media channels to see people use the word pedophile freely uh, to refer to their opponents without basis. And that's really troubling to people who know the role, the history of language in dehumanizing groups of people. I spoke with Marilyn Mayo about this. She's with the Anti-Defamation League.
20: I mean, there's no clearer example than we, than what we saw during World War II, right? When the Nazis, for example, dehumanized Jews to the point where, you know, they were, you know, mercilessly killed.
6: You know, the other concern here is simply that child trafficking narratives set the stakes so high that some people may feel justified in committing acts of political violence. So how has all of this affected the work of trying to combat the very real and very serious problem of child trafficking? I spoke with Katherine Chen about that. Um, she's the CEO of the Polaris Project, which is a national anti-trafficking organization. She says the spread of this disinformation and these conspiracy theories have harmed real efforts to address the issue. You know, Kelsey, there have been these viral claims about supposed techniques that traffickers use to lure or snatch women off the streets, all of them false. And Chen says that this is complicated work on the ground.
17: It is already extraordinarily challenging for the anti-trafficking community, for law enforcement, for community members, for family members, to help somebody understand the coercive relationship that they might be in. It's much harder if what you're seeing on TikTok or on Instagram or on, you know, other social media channels are these extreme ideas that conspiracy theorists are putting out there about what trafficking actually
6: looks like. And, you know, Chen says that people who are vulnerable to trafficking often are also victims of other societal inequities. You know, they're often homeless, for example. So this hysteria around trafficking is distracting people from addressing those root causes of the vulnerabilities. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An Australian journalist goes on trial in Beijing today. She's been accused of espionage and is one of several journalists detained as relations between Australia and China remain strained. NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Feng brings us this report.
24: Cheng Lei's trial began on a chilly morning with lots of police and red tape. Graham Fletcher, Australia's ambassador to China, tried to attend.
3: I'm here to um, attend her trial if possible and support her.
24: But was rebuffed from the courtroom by police citing national security laws barring an open trial.
3: Well, um, as you've seen, we've just been denied entry into the trial. This is deeply concerning, unsatisfactory and regrettable. We can have no confidence in the validity of a process uh, which is conducted in secret.
24: Chung had been an anchor on a prominent news show for China's state broadcaster until 2020, when she was suddenly detained on national security grounds. This was around the same time relations between Australia and China plummeted. China blocked Australian imports earlier in the year. Then, Australian police raided the homes of several Chinese academics and journalists it suspected of being spies. Weeks later, Chung was arrested, and two other Australian journalists interrogated about her. They later fled China. Since then, Chung's been detained, awaiting trial, without access to family or her children. Her lawyer is banned from sharing details of the allegations against her.
3: We have no information about the charges or allegations against Ms. Chung. And no, we just don't have any information on that. And that, that, is, that is part of the reason why we're so concerned, because we have no uh, basis on which to understand why she's being detained.
24: Another Chinese-born Australian citizen, the pro-democracy writer Yang Hengjun, was tried last year in the same courthouse as Cheng. They both face up to life in prison. Officially, they've been accused of passing on state secrets to a foreign country. Their families deny these allegations, and China's offered no evidence, say diplomats, of what Cheng actually is accused of doing. This state media video was released just weeks before Cheng's trial. It claims she passed on data about China's economy to the U.S. and Australia. How else could Cheng say so confidently that the U.S. and Australia understood China's economic developments? No matter how you look at it, Cheng Lei clearly had problems. She also sent her children to Australia during the pandemic and mocked China on foreign websites. Who would have thought she would bite the hand that fed her? A verdict in Chung's case is not expected immediately. Her case is among several instances of harassment and intimidation against journalists. While not as serious as a national security charge, there have been at least nine lawsuits against other foreign journalists in the last year. And just after Chung was detained, Bloomberg reporter Hayes Fan was also detained on national security suspicions. She has not been formally charged, nor has she been released. She has simply disappeared. Emily Fang and Pure News, Beijing.
13: Consider This is NPR's daily podcast where we go even deeper on a story to help you make sense of the day. Today, a look at the overlap between environmental activism and far-right extremism. Researchers say this intersection is bigger than many people realize. Why the eco-fascism movement is growing today on Consider This, listen in your podcast feed. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear about San Francisco street activists calling on techies to give up a key part of the Silicon Valley uniform, the Patagonia vest. And an ailing biochemist aims to cure himself of an illness but becomes a living vampire, it's the new Marvel movie Morbius. You'll get a review.
13: Do you have little ones in your life? great news the mega awesome super huge wicked fun podcast playdate is returning to wbur city space april
6: 23rd and 24th join me rebecca Shear, host of wbur's children's storytelling podcast circle round and some of our other favorite kids podcasts for live
13: performances music and activities tickets and more information at wbur.org circle round see you there It's 63
0: degrees in Boston, showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, lows in the low 50s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Friday with a chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary
25: Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com And the Concord Museum. Experience history and art in the delightful new exhibit, Alive with Birds, William Brewster in Concord.
16: ConcordMuseum.org. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need: a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news—the news you trust.
20: Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org/cars.
12: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang.
13: And I'm Kelsey Snell. Office workers coming back in cities like New York and San Francisco also mean the return of something else, the Patagonia fleece vest. The garment has long been associated with Wall Street and Silicon Valley. NPR's Bobby Allen examines how the fashion choice has come to represent the excess of industries.
26: I find Sam Runkle in flip-flops, playing fetch with his golden retriever with a lacrosse stick and ball in a grassy field overlooking the San Francisco Bay.
10: How's it going?
26: Good, how are you doing? I approach him because he's wearing a Patagonia vest, something that's become a symbol of being a techie. You wouldn't consider yourself a tech bro though, right?
27: Uh, I definitely work in tech. <laughs> You're definitely and, a guy. And I'm definitely a guy. So if you want to label me as a tech bro, by all means. I'm not sure I identify personally.
26: But whether you like it or not, the Patagonia vest has become a part of the tech bro uniform. Yes, plenty of women and non-tech workers wear them too, of course, but Runkle admits it's most often sported by bros and often bros who know something about venture capital or software engineering. But look, Runkle says it's also the perfect windshield for a city on the tip of a peninsula. It's comfy. It gets the job done. Not far away in the trendy Marina District, a resistance of sorts is brewing. Anti-tech flyers have started to appear, saying, quote, urgent, stop wearing vests. The tension comes as no surprise to historian Margaret O'Mara at the University of Washington. She says the popularity of the fleece vest in tech circles coincided with a flood of new investors piling into flashy startups. In a way, it has its roots in the marriage of Silicon Valley and Wall Street that started with the dot-com boom. As Wall Street and Silicon Valley became closer over the years, venture capitalists ditched the sweater vests for Wall Street's favorite garment, the Patagonia vest.
9: You know, you can wear your pressed
20: khakis and your collared shirt and then you put on a fleece vest and that just
26: hits the right sweet spot between East Coast money and West Coast casual. Elite tech conferences started handing them out as swag. It became a status symbol to waltz around the Bay Area rocking a vest with the name of a venture capital firm you recently closed a deal with or the embroidered logo of your new job at a big tech company. Smooks Radara remembers moving to San Francisco and walking to his tech job and seeing person after person wearing the same vest.
27: It just seemed like something that didn't necessarily fit in San
3: Francisco.
26: So he began selling a so-called VC starter pack. It included a book by entrepreneur Peter Thiel and a gray Patagonia fleece vest.
3: In a
27: place that's usually known for its diversity of types of people and, and types of things that people work on, everyone just ends up wearing the same outfit in this one industry.
26: He says he's seen fewer vests with the names of companies and tech conferences of late, in part because of Patagonia. Last year, it said it would stop selling vests with corporate logos. Still, the vest uniform isn't going anywhere. On a recent afternoon in downtown San Francisco, a bunch of fintech workers are strolling about, some in their vests, like Jose Nazario.
0: Uh, So I started two weeks ago. And in preparation, because I knew I wasn't wearing a suit,
27: I bought three vests. And I made sure not to get a Patagonia one because I didn't want to get stereotyped, so I got non-labeled vests for that reason.
26: Yeah, okay, he might look like a tech or finance bro, but look, he says it's kind of complimentary too. His colleagues got a kick out of this.
27: It's part of the
4: uniform, and uh, it fits. I I like the way vests look, on me. they fit. They make my shoulders look big. I'm a guy, big shoulders help.
26: But it's not so chic in every city. Sridhara, who made the VC starter kit, recently launched a new one for techies moving to Miami. Among the items, a fashion consultant appointment so tech workers don't look ridiculous wearing the fleece vests with a pina colada in hand along South Beach. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Francisco.
12: The Marvel Cinematic Universe's latest superhero is not, in the conventional sense, either super or a hero. His name is Morbius, and while watching his origin story, critic Bob Mondello says he couldn't escape the feeling that somewhere wires got crossed.
14: We begin with a helicopter, transporting a cage to the sort of mist-shrouded isle you half expect King Kong to be inhabiting. But Michael Morbius, the passenger on the copter, is looking to capture smaller game as he approaches the mouth of a cave. He hobbles with difficulty on two crutch-like canes. you need a doctor?
5: I am a doctor.
14: And with a glance to the copter crew, calmly slices open his hand.
22: You're gonna run. Do it now.
14: Bats. By which I mean he's attracting bats, not that he's gone batty, though that's kind of true too. Born with a rare blood disease, Morbius has spent his entire life working on two things, a cure and origami paper folding. So of course it occurs to him to fold together bat and human DNA, and because the FDA wouldn't approve That's
22: not exactly legal.
14: He and his beautiful co-researcher Martine head for a cargo ship off the coast of Long Island in the company of eight mercenaries, I know, I know, just go with it, so that Martine can inject him with a bit of a bat uh, you can
7: buckle the up, the up. Yeah. Right.
14: once he's strapped to a chair she goes outside the lab to wait moment of truth <laughs> now let it be said that some bat bit side effects are not terrible bat dna evidently gives you great cheekbones and abs not to mention i have increased strength and speed some form of bat radar. But his bat radar must be off-brand, because he spends an awful lot of his time crashing into things, and his new fangs come with decades of decay baked in. Also, there's something
22: inside of him. He
15: wants to hunt
14: and consume blood. Okay, that is a definite drawback. Now if you're expecting a conventional Marvel movie, you should know going in that what director Daniel Espinosa and his writers have come up with is actually a horror flick. What did you do to yourself, Doctor? I wish I knew with Marvel bells and whistles, so Jared Leto's Dr. Morbius gets purplish vapor trails to go with his fang-bearing snarls, while the similarly affected Hyde to his Jekyll, played by Matt Smith, gets bluish vapor trails and snappier lines.
18: All our lives we've lived with death. Why shouldn't they know what it feels like for a change?
14: But there isn't really a lot of tension to their story. What the hell is that thing? Or even logic. At one point, Morbius overhears some counterfeiters passing fake hundreds and commandeers their printing press to make, I think, an artificial blood machine because the technologies for fake bills and fake blood match up. Maybe works better in a comic book. Speaking of which, when the DC Extended Universe announced that Twilight star Robert Pattinson would be playing the Batman, I thought it was a fun inside joke, from vampire teen to Batman. But now that I've seen Jared Leto going full Dracula in the Marvel Universe, it seems as if the casting maybe should have gone the other way around? Just accept who you are bat guy. <laughs> bad guy, bat guy, who's to say? As the trailers reveal, another DC bat guy, Michael Keaton, shows up in his non-batty, but definitely bad, Marvel persona. Just a mess with the heads of anyone trying to keep cinematic universes straight. No doubt bloodlines will be clarified in more robust episodes to come. Morbius being fine, but by Marvel standards, kind of anemic. I'm Bob Mandello.
13: Income-driven repayment plans are supposed to make federal student loans more affordable if they're managed correctly. An NPR investigation tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening
17: to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. From Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis
25: Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Forester and Outback Wilderness Edition. Available now, citysidesubaru.com.
17: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: In Ukraine's capital city, some people are moving out of shelters and back into apartments.
3: The war is not about stopping the living, right? A war is about redirecting your resources to fight the invaders. But it doesn't mean that you have to stop your life.
0: It is Thursday, March 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. President Biden has announced the largest ever release of oil from the nation's Strategic Petroleum Reserve.
5: This is a wartime bridge increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year.
0: Also, you'll get the story on how climate change and economic turmoil are causing big problems for some ski resorts. And Sarah Lancashire talks about the power of women and playing Julia Child in the new HBO series, Julia. It's 501 First This News.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Speer. President Biden is ordering the release of one million barrels of oil a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves over the next six months. NPR's Asma Holly reports it's an effort to bring some relief to persistently high gas prices.
16: This is an unprecedented move that a senior administration official described as a wartime bridge. The White House has tried to frame high gas prices as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, dubbing the increase Putin's price hike. But persistently high gas prices are a political problem for Democrats ahead of the midterm elections. Republicans have seized on the issue and even begun holding events at gas stations in key battleground states. It's unclear how quickly the release will trickle down. To gas stations. Twice in the last few months, the president has announced additional releases of oil, but he's been under political pressure to do more. Asma Khalid, NPR News,
19: the White House. The International Atomic Energy Agency says Russian forces are withdrawing from Ukraine's Chernobyl nuclear site. As NPR's Jeff Bromfield reports, the withdrawal comes a little over a month after Russian troops invaded the facility.
27: The Atomic Energy Agency says that two convoys of troops headed out of Chernobyl towards the Belarusian border. Russian forces also formally returned control of the site to Ukrainian authorities. Chernobyl, which was the site of the world's first nuclear accident in 1986, was taken by Russia in late February. Ukrainian workers were held at the site for weeks without relief, and a power outage briefly threatened safety systems at the defunct nuclear plant. The agency said it was not able to confirm a rumor that some Russian troops had been exposed to high doses of radiation while working in the exclusion zone around the site. Jeff Brumfield, NPR
5: News, Washington.
19: Prosecutors say they're charging an employee of the National Security Agency with sending classified information over his personal email. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the man was arrested by the FBI.
12: Mark Unkenholtz allegedly passed government secrets 13 times using his personal email address between 2018 and 2020. The indictment says the information related to the national defense and was classified at the secret and top secret levels. Unkenholtz worked for an NSA office that coordinated with private sector businesses. Prosecutors didn't identify the person who received the information or that person's private employer, but they said the person used to have a security clearance. Unkenholz faces 26 different criminal charges for unlawfully transmitting
20: and retaining secrets in his personal email account. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
19: A key government inflation gauge took a big bump up in February. The government announcing today its consumer price index rose 6.4 percent. It was the biggest year-over-year increase since 1982. Stocks lost ground in the final trading day of the first quarter. The Dow plunged 550 points. Today, the Nasdaq was down 221 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Parole Board today reviewed the case of a man whose life in prison sentence has been commuted by the governor. William Allen has been in prison for 28 years on a first-degree murder conviction. Because the governor commuted his sentence, he's now eligible for parole. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
25: William Allen told the board that he's deeply remorseful for taking part in the robbery that led to the murder of Purvis Bester. He said if he is paroled, he would live with his family in Brockton and he has a job at a local car dealership. Eventually, he wants to mentor at-risk youth. He also said he has mental health and peer support. Plymouth County District Attorney Tim Cruz came to the hearing and testified that Allen has earned the right to return to the community. The parole board will now decide if Alan will be paroled and his conditions for release for 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker.
0: The state Senate has gone along with the Massachusetts House and given unanimous approval to a bill that bans discrimination that targets hair texture and styles. Supporters brought the bill before the legislature in part because black people have been pressured or ordered to change their hair in schools and in workplaces. Boston State Senator Lydia Edwards says as a black woman, she feels this bill is a statement that's been needed for a long time.
9: Who you are and how you present in this world is beautiful, is necessary, is political, is powerful, and we will not demand that you be anything less than that anymore.
0: The bill now goes to the governor for his approval. The U.S. House also has passed similar legislation. Two Massachusetts residents are among a group of people indicted on felony charges connected with the invasion of a Washington, D.C. clinic providing abortions. Authorities charge Paulette Harlow, Jean Marshall, and seven other people with conspiracy and obstructing clinic access. They're accused of creating a false appointment at a clinic, forcing their way into the building, and then barricading the doors about a year and a half ago. Authorities say they discovered multiple multiple fetuses in the home of the group's leader, Lauren Handy, when she was arrested in Washington, D.C. In sports at the Garden tonight, the Bruins play the Devils. This afternoon in spring training baseball, the Red Sox beat the Twins 4-3. to It is 63 degrees in Boston, showers and a chance of thunderstorms tonight, mostly cloudy, a chance of showers tomorrow, highs in the low 60s.
25: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, protecting small businesses with specialized coverages for commercial vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Today, the US announced more sanctions on some Russian businesses and individuals. And Russia, in turn, has asked to be paid for its gas exports in rubles. Meanwhile, the U.S. expects to deliver all of the $800 million in military aid to Ukraine, which includes shoulder fired weapons against tanks and aircraft, by the middle of April. The Pentagon says they are seeing some repositioning of Russian forces away from Kyiv to the north. But according to NATO intelligence, Russia is maintaining pressure on Kyiv. Well, NPR's Alyssa Nadmorny is there in Kyiv, and she joins us now. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what are you hearing on the ground about continued fighting?
28: Well, Ukrainian forces are still fighting all over the country, even in Kherson, which Russians claim to have taken. Here in Kyiv, we've had air sirens much of the evening tonight, and there were two loud explosions near the center of the city. Officials haven't released information on what was hit yet, but multiple explosions were reported here Tuesday night and into the early hours of, of Wednesday. Ukrainian officials are echoing what Western intelligence has said. Major Volodymyr Fitya, a spokesperson for Ukraine's Ground Forces Command, told us this today. He's saying there is no retreat. Certain divisions have left because they've lost their military effectiveness. We've damaged them a great deal, and others are coming in their place.
12: And I understand that, Alyssa, you have been out and about talking to people in Kyiv before the sirens what did you find walking around there so Kyiv is
28: a city that's still mostly empty it's estimated that half the population has left and overwhelmingly the people that we do find you know they say they don't trust russian promises they're anticipating this war to last a while and yet there's also a sense that this is the new normal you know people are moving out of the shelters and back into their apartments And some who left Kyiv are trickling back in. Sitting outside a coffee shop in a residential neighborhood near the city center, I find Alex Mikalenko.
3: I'm personally not afraid.
28: Alex came back to Kyiv a week ago.
3: Oh, It was just a feeling that I have to come back.
28: When the war started, he fled the city, went west, volunteered, but he's come back because it's felt safer. His friends, who also fled, keep asking him if they should come back too. It's a personal decision, he says, but he also tells them this.
3: You can hear the artillery working on the outskirts of Kiev, but in general, people are nervous, but they still continue to live their lives.
28: The city is still a shadow of itself right now, he says, but things are starting to open up. All the tables outside the cafe are full. Down the street, city workers are moving a barricade of tires on a side street so civilians can drive through.
3: This is the sound of life coming back. Uh, The uh, municipal services are working. Dogs are outside. People are drinking coffee. The war is not about stopping the living, right? The war is about redirecting your resources to fight the invaders. But it doesn't mean that you have to stop your life.
28: It's been a bit harder to adapt to this new normal for Vlada and her two-year-old daughter Alina. She's worried she's not being a good parent, because she made the decision to stay in Kyiv. It was a hard decision. Leaving was scary, but so is staying. She tells me they spent the first several days of the war down in the subway, and then in a shelter. Now they're back in their apartment. Sheltering in a corridor when the air alarms go off. When little Alina hears the explosions,
29: she, she says, boom. She
28: thinks it's a game, Vlada says. She's too young to understand what's going on. Vlada and her husband, they don't tell Alina otherwise. They don't want to mess with her mental health. They're on their way now to a shop to get some candy for Alina but they won't stay away from the apartment too long.
29: (laughs) Vlada says (laughs) she still doesn't feel
28: safe, but where should they go? This is their home. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv.
13: Leading up to the 2020
28: election, Facebook founder Mark
13: Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan made a massive donation, hundreds of millions of dollars to help run voting during the pandemic. Voting officials across the country say that money saved their elections in 2020. But now, more than a dozen states have passed laws banning similar donations in the future. NPR's Miles Parks covers voting. He joins us now. Hi, Miles. Hi, Kelsey. So about these donations, where exactly did all this money go?
30: So just for context, funding has been an issue in elections for years. A recent MIT study found that the U.S. spends roughly the same amount of money on elections every year as it does maintaining parking facilities. Mm. So the pandemic only exacerbated this problem that already existed and created all of these new needs, you know, ramping up vote-by-mail systems, needing to make in-person voting safer. And while Congress did send some money at the onset of the pandemic to support election officials, it didn't send any more after the primaries, which is where Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan stepped in to help. I should note here that Meta, the company Zuckerberg founded, pays to license NPR content. And it's also worth noting that while Zuckerberg is credited with helping these election officials, the company he founded, Facebook, has been heavily criticized for harming democracy, for allowing misinformation to flourish.
13: OK, so these two gave hundreds of millions of dollars to supporting voting. But donations like this are now being outlawed in a bunch of Republican-led states. So why is that happening now?
30: So, like. Basically, every aspect of the 2020 election, these donations have become the source of a lot of conspiracy Mm -hmm. theorizing. Republicans have alleged that the donated money gave Zuckerberg some sort of ability to interfere in the election in favor of Democrats and Joe Biden. There's no evidence that that's the case. It is the case that a lot of this money was spent helping counties expand their vote by mail efforts and generally helping voting access, which doesn't necessarily favor Democrats, even if people like former President Trump You know, have consistently claimed that it does. In Philadelphia, for instance, the city used some of the money to buy machines that would help them sort their hundreds of thousands of mail ballots by ward and precinct. And I talked to Al Schmidt, who's a Republican and former election commissioner in Philadelphia about the money.
1: I know the benefit that that funding provided.
30: And I cannot comprehend what a mess the 2020 election would have been if we did not have the equipment that we were able to purchase. But now in more than a dozen states across the country, donations like this will not be allowed in future elections.
13: OK, but elections are a government function. Shouldn't they be funded by the government?
30: I think most people would agree with that. What's interesting here is that that includes the people who were involved with these private oh. donations, the officials, the voting officials who accepted them, the group that helped Zucker allocate them, and even Zuckerberg himself, they all agree this donation system is not how elections should work. It's a lot cleaner if the government pays for every aspect of voting. But these bans are not coming with any new consistent funding structures. I talked to Tiana Epps Johnson, who runs the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which is the nonprofit that helped Zuckerberg distribute the donations.
27: Well, legislatures have
4: been taking up the issue of banning the ability to supplement election departments' budgets, they haven't at the same time made sure to address the underlying issue that made our work necessary in the first place.
13: All right, Congress did pass a spending bill recently. So did did they have any new money here or did they include elections?
30: It did, roughly $75 million, but it's worth noting that a recent report found that to modernize and run elections in the U.S. would cost, you know, something like $50 billion. So Mm. election officials generally have kind of scoffed at that number.
12: NPR's Miles Parks, thanks so much. Thank you. The United Nations is trying to rally the world to help Afghanistan. And it says it needs a record amount of money for humanitarian efforts, $4.4 billion. Donors pledged more than half of that amount today, as NPR's Michelle Calliman reports.
31: The UN's top humanitarian official, Martin Griffiths, just wrapped up a trip to Afghanistan.
8: And I must tell you that I saw human suffering during those three days that left me quite speechless.
31: He told donors that he saw newborns clinging to life, sharing rundown incubators.
8: These babies were emaciated, listless, and far too small. And mind you, this is in downtown Kabul. This is not out in the rural areas and the poorer areas of this country.
31: Afghanistan was dependent on foreign aid before the Taliban took over last year. Now with overseas bank accounts frozen and the Taliban facing sanctions, the country's economy has collapsed. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the war in Ukraine has led to skyrocketing food prices, making matters
15: worse. This spells catastrophe for both Afghans struggling to feed their families and for our aid operations. Without the immediate action, We face a starvation and malnutrition crisis in Afghanistan.
31: Donors announced about $2.4 billion in aid for Afghanistan and neighboring countries. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield made clear that the $200 million she announced will go through the U.N. and won't be controlled by the Taliban.
11: The people of Afghanistan have our unequivocal support. But the Taliban's ambition to improve its own relations with the international community depends on its conduct.
31: She and many others urged the Taliban to let girls go to school. Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, said an Afghan activist recently told her that the Taliban are reversing women's rights.
20: It's like all the progress we've made was built out of ice. That ice has been put in the sun and now everything is melting away. That's how she put it.
31: U.N. aid chief Martin Griffiths said he shares these frustrations, but he urged donors not to reduce aid in response. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
27: This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and ahead on All Things Considered, the women's final four.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org.
0: In business news, today as part of marking the International Transgender Day of Visibility, a Boston startup, Namesake Collaborative, and the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition said they're partnering on a pilot program. It is an effort to streamline the process for trans people to update their names and gender markers on government records. Namesake Collaborative has developed a platform to collect the information and then populate it on the necessary forms. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed down 550 points or 1.5% at 34,678. The Nasdaq closed down 221 points, 1.5% at 14,220. The S&P 500 closed down 72 points at 4530.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures Talk at LizLinder.com.
0: It is 63 degrees in Boston, some showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, some patchy fog, and lows dropping to the low 50s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Friday with a chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI.
12: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
17: And I'm Kelsey Snell.
13: It's spring break season, a make-or-break time for America's $50 billion ski industry. This year was supposed to be a post-COVID turnaround for resorts, but labor shortages and persistent drought means many are still struggling. As NPR's Kirk Ziegler reports, drought raises anxiety about climate change and whether ski resorts have a future.
27: Interstate 70, which connects Denver to the famous ski resorts of the Colorado Rockies, is a parking lot. SUVs with ski racks choke the thoroughfare alongside scores of idling semi-trucks. Belching out smog in the pristine high country everyone is escaping the city to get to.
6: There's more and more people and more and more traffic and it just, ugh.
27: Skier and reluctant driver, Aaron Walton,
6: there's too many contradictory things happening. All the, you know, it just, honestly, it kind of makes us sad about the future of skiing and what it's going to mean for people, for the environment.
27: That is the irony of burning fossil fuels to get to skiing. That's dependent on cold, snowy winters. And then there are the jet setters. Farther west at the tiny Aspen Airport, a line of private jets queues along the runway. Looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven private jets just right here. And these are big planes. These look like they could be commercial airline jets. Aspen, where old hippies and extreme skiers share the slopes with celebrities and royalty is a familiar punching bag. And the Aspen Ski Company's vice president of sustainability, Auden Schendler, is used to the shots. If you're
32: saying greed drives our industry, you're essentially attacking capitalism as a whole. We're not going to eliminate capitalism, but we could fix it. What does that look like? It would look like, for example, a national carbon tax. We're advocating for that. Schindler and
27: company executives also convinced this valley's utility to disconnect from fossil fuel electricity and they were the only resort to join a lawsuit defending the Biden administration's freeze on new oil and gas leasing on public land.
3: Call us hypocrites call
32: us whatever you want if we're not doing that work but don't tell me ah, you're using carbon therefore you can't talk that's what the fossil fuel industry wants us to do is to not do anything and not change the system. Getting
27: off the Aspen Mountain gondola, skiers are greeted by a dystopian exhibit. Here, where tourists usually snap photos of the stunning vistas of the Elk Mountains, there's a gondola car lying tilted on the snow. It looks like you took a gondola cabin and put it on a hot street and it melted like a a scoop of ice cream. It's meant to alarm Aspen's powerful and moneyed guests into action. I've always been concerned
32: that warming would end the ski industry. It will. And by the way, yeah, we'll be the last resort standing because you and I are at 11,000 feet right now. But that doesn't help us. If the mom and pop ski resort in Jersey goes away, those are our future clients.
27: Is the melted gondola gimmick working? Jacob Phillip, who's visiting from California, didn't notice.
30: You know, there's a lot of uh, concerns that I have right now in life in the United States, in life in Los Angeles where we live. You know, whether my ski season gets a little bit shorter because of climate change
27: is, you know, probably, uh, you know, may, maybe makes the top 200. I don't know if it makes the top 150. <laughs> Philip's ski season is already about a month shorter. The temperature has risen by three degrees Fahrenheit in the Colorado Rockies since 1980. What does that mean? Here's Ashley Pearl, who's in charge of the city of Aspen's climate response.
31: In my lifetime here in Aspen, so since 1980, we've lost 30
27: frozen days. So we have 30 more frost free days than we used to. The shortening winter here is so alarming that city leaders recently cited the climate crisis as one reason for temporarily banning all new residential construction. A perennial controversy is that many of this town's workers have to commute in to build and maintain luxury energy sucking homes that are empty most of the year. Our workforce comes from a long way away to keep this town running that comes with emissions from traffic. And our visitors come on their private
0: jets, which has a lot of emissions associated with it. And that's always been the dichotomy of Aspen.
27: But with the affordable housing crisis colliding with climate anxiety, things have felt especially tense here this winter.
5: It's very scary for a lot of people. Tim
27: Mooney has also lived in Aspen for most of his life.
5: Skiing is going to change. The planet is going to change. And the guys who are stealing all the money that have the private jets that live in the castles aren't gonna give a because they have staff and they can go to wherever the weather is.
27: Mooney says the ultra wealthy will just go somewhere else when climate change ends skiing in Colorado, leaving locals to worry about the future of their snow dependent towns. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Aspen.
12: Over the last two years, we have been remembering some of the nearly 1 million people who have died of COVID-19 in the U.S. People like Chris Gagwitch. Chris lived in Long Island with his wife Michelle and their two sons, Nate and Quinn. Michelle says one of the things she loved most about Chris was his mind.
20: Brilliant. Chris was brilliant. Very accomplished attorney and um, also loved ska music. I remember being at concerts with him and you could just find him. He was giant. He was four, probably 300 pounds, always looked nice so handsome but a big teddy bear because he wasn't a tough guy he was kind in addition to being a ska
13: super fan michelle says chris was a voracious reader who had a vast depth of knowledge across a wide range of subjects but his favorite thing in the world it was dinosaurs.
20: He had an extensive, extensive dinosaur collection, thousands and thousands. He had fossils. We would go to the Museum of Natural History.
12: As a father, Chris made sure to share his endless curiosity with his sons.
20: He instilled in them this childlike wonderment to see what else is out there. He had high expectations, and I think it really taught the boys that sense of discipline and the importance of taking pride in what you do. In mid-March 2020, Chris fell ill with COVID while under vacation with his brothers in
13: Key West. Unable to fly home, Chris and his brothers decided to drive. After they got back to New Jersey, Michelle took Chris to the
20: doctor, then the hospital. So I pulled out at the circle at Huntington Hospital and dropped him off because we weren't allowed to go in with him. So that was the last time I was with him when he was conscious.
12: Chris's condition continued to worsen. And after nearly a month in the hospital, a nurse called Michelle and urged her to come as soon as possible.
20: By the time I got to the hospital, he had already passed away, but they let me go in with him and I got to stay with him for a few hours, just trying to wrap my head around the fact that he was 50 and he was gone.
13: Michelle says that losing Chris left her heartbroken and the ongoing pandemic has only made the loss harder.
20: The most challenging part of losing a loved one to COVID is that it's all that's in the news, right? So now for two years, we can't get a break.
12: Still, Michelle says she does appreciate it when people acknowledge and validate her grief.
20: It's not linear. There's going to be hard days and not hard days. And give people space to say, do you want to talk about Chris? And then just listen, right? Because you can't fix it. You can't wish it away. It's just holding space. Chris
13: Gegwich, attorney, ska lover, dinosaur fanatic, husband and father, died on April 10th, 2020. He was 50 years old. To honor his memory, his family created the Christopher Gagwitch Foundation, which supports academic scholarships at institutions important to Chris and his family.
12: If you would like us to memorialize a loved one you have lost to COVID-19, find us on Twitter, at NPRATC. There's a pinned tweet at the top of the page.
13: This is NPR News. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529 and coming up on All Things Considered, taking another look at the Great Relocation, with many people now able to do their jobs remotely. Cities across the U.S. are using a range of perks in an attempt to lure workers. Also, you'll get the story on President Biden's announcement of the largest ever release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. It is 63 degrees in Boston, and tonight, some showers and a chance of thunderstorms, some patchy fog around, lows overnight in the low 50s. For Friday, mostly cloudy and a chance of showers. Tomorrow's temperatures reaching the
22: low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, offering short-term summer programs abroad for students who want to get out and experience the world through hands-on learning. More at efgapyear.com.
24: The news never sleeps, and we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night, so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems, the stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better.
11: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In a bid to control soaring gas prices, President Biden is ordering the release of 1 million barrels of oil a day from the nation's Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the next six months. Biden blames the high gas prices on the pandemic and on Russia's war in Ukraine. The
5: start of this year, gas was about $3.30 a gallon. Today, it's about averaging 4 420, It's higher in many states. Nearly a dollar more in less than three months. The reason for that is because of Putin's war.
11: Though it's not clear if or how much gas prices will drop as a result. Prices spiked as the U.S. and allies imposed steep sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Biden also says oil companies are focused on profits instead of putting out more barrels. NATO Secretary General says he doesn't see evidence that Russia is making good on its claims of scaling back military actions in Ukraine. Terry Schultz reports the alliance says its intelligence suggests that the Kremlin has other plans. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg didn't
16: mince words about what NATO analysts see happening in Ukraine after the Russian government said it would reduce military operations to build trust for peace negotiations.
1: Russia has repeatedly lied about its intentions. According to our intelligence, Russian units are not withdrawing, but repositioning. Russia maintains pressure on Kiev and other cities, so we can expect additional offensive actions.
16: Stoltenberg says instead of pulling out, it appears Moscow is resupplying and reinforcing its presence in eastern Ukraine, where the Kremlin has supported separatists since illegally annexing Crimea in 2014. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. All three major indices
11: down more than 1.5%. The Dow lost 550 points. The NASDAQ down 221. S&P 500 down 72. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A new study on Boston's air quality has found more pollutants in areas with large Asian populations, including Chinatown. It is the latest analysis from a research collaboration that's tracked air pollution for more than a decade. WBUR's Amy Moon reports.
23: The Community Assessment of Freeway Exposure and Health Study monitors conditions especially around major highways like I-93. Its new analysis finds a high concentration of ultra-fine particles in the air downtown, where there are large Asian-American communities, compared to areas farther away from Boston's city center. One of the study's authors, Christina Fuller with Georgia State University, says it's an environmental justice concern.
20: This is a specific racial group who is adversely impacted compared to other racial groups throughout the city. Fuller
23: says the invisible particles have been associated with increased risk of heart disease and respiratory conditions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon.
0: The family of a Marine fatally stabbed outside a bar in Boston is planning to file a lawsuit against the establishment. Daniel Martinez was killed March 19th near the Sons of Boston, not far from Faneuil Hall. The pub's bouncer, Alvaro LaRama, has been charged with his murder. Manuel Martinez is the father of Daniel Martinez.
10: That loss of separation that you're never going to see them again here on this earth, That's where our faith comes in, and we have uh, great faith, and we believe that one day we're going to be reunited.
23: The
0: family's attorney says the goal of the lawsuit involves learning more about the altercation and the bar's hiring practices. The bar has not responded to WBUR's request for comment on the planned lawsuit. The gubernatorial campaign of State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz is criticizing her Democratic gubernatorial primary rival, Attorney General Maura Healy. Chang-Diaz is calling for three debates before the party's convention in June. Today, Healy said she is committed to taking part in two forums before the convention and two debates after the convention. Chang-Diaz accuses Healy of dodging debates and says forums are not a replacement for debates. Healy's campaign says... Both types of events offer important opportunities for voters to hear from candidates. It's 534. We're funded by you,
25: our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching,
0: and yoga. SemesterOff.com. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, lows in the low 50s. Tomorrow... Mostly cloudy, a chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
13: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. President Biden is ordering one million barrels of oil per day to be released from strategic reserves every day for the next six months. His announcement comes as Democrats face mounting political pressure to do something about consistently high gas prices. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is covering this story and joins us now. Hey Asma. Hi Elsa. So what exactly
16: is the president ordering here to make all of this happen? Well, as you mentioned, he is authorizing the largest release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in US history. The scale and duration has never been done before. Uh, in total, we're talking about 180 million barrels of oil over the next 180 days. Wow. And just for some perspective, I mean, that is more than three times the size of the last big release. The White House is really trying to frame this all as a wartime bridge. You know, in the last few months, gas prices have gone up by about a dollar a gallon, mm-hmm. and sanctions over the war in Ukraine have really hit the oil market. Um. Biden has been trying to pin the blame on greedy corporations and Russian President Vladimir Putin. You know, I have heard Biden deliver a number of speeches in recent weeks about the war in Ukraine, but this one sounded different because of something he kept saying.
5: As Russian oil comes off the global market, supply of oil drops and prices are rising. Now Putin's price hike is hitting Americans
16: at the pump. Putin's price hike. And yeah. the president referred to Putin by name 14 times in this speech. Whoa, 14 times, okay. Well, how much
12: of an impact, Esma, could a release of oil on this scale have?
16: I will say that is really unclear at this point. Uh, The president told reporters that prices could come down 10 to 35 cents a gallon, but White House advisors wouldn't really hazard a guess, at least not publicly. So I decided to pose this question to a couple of outside experts. Jason Bordoff was involved in tapping oil reserves in 2011 with the Obama White House.
27: It's causing oil prices to fall today and that may continue. We don't know exactly for how long. There's also uncertainty about whether European countries will join the United States in releasing strategic oil stocks as the Biden administration uh, has called on them to do.
16: So part of this depends on allies and how many barrels are going to be released by allies. I also talked to Bob McNally. He's a consultant with a firm called Rapidan. He worked on these issues in the George W. Bush White House. And he said there's just no way that President Biden can make up for the disruption in the market caused by this war. I doubt
32: that even this big of a release is going to keep crude oil prices and therefore gasoline prices uh, from rising further. And that's because Russia is the world's largest oil exporter.
16: And Elsa, some analysts say that it'll take more than just one tool to actually bring gas prices down consistently. Uh, They say that something that could have a dramatic impact is if uh, countries like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates begin producing more oil, or if, say, Iran re-enters the nuclear deal and sanctions on Iranian oil are lifted. But I will say uh, we have not seen any really substantial movement on on, on any of those fronts at this point.
12: Well, Biden has made this decision and in arriving at this decision, can you talk about all the different political pressures that he's been facing on this?
16: Uh, I mean, a lot, I will say. Uh, Republicans have been hammering the president over rising gas prices for many months at this point. Um, You know, they are actually hosting midterm campaign events at gas stations in competitive states. And Democrats, I should say more specifically, President Biden, have been under a lot of political pressure to do something. Uh, The last two times that this administration released millions of barrels of oil from reserve in just the last couple of months, it has not actually had a measurable impact uh, on prices. But for months, Democratic analysts have told me that the president needs to look like he's trying.
12: That is NPR White House correspondent, Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma.
16: Happy to do it. It's down to the final four
13: tomorrow in the Women's Division I College Basketball Tournament. Judging by TV ratings, crowds, and just great basketball, the women's event has already been a success. But success this year was always going to be measured by how the women stacked up against the men's tournament. NPR's Tom Goldman explains.
32: As far as 38-second videos go, this one packed a punch.
13: I got something to show
32: y'all. Sedona Prince, a player for the University of Oregon, put the video together at the start of last year's women's tournament.
27: So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college
9: basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room.
32: It was vast compared to the women's sad little stack of dumbbells. The video angered millions and forced an apology from NCAA President Mark Emmert. He vowed to address gender inequity in college sports. A months long investigation confirmed the NCAA prioritized the wildly popular and lucrative men's tournament over everything else and undervalued the women's tournament. It set up this year's women's event as a test of whether fixes were happening and the results are mixed. At last weekend's regional competition in Spokane, Washington, one obvious sign of change was right there at center court, the words March Madness, words and branding historically used only in the men's tournament. This year, the women were allowed into the exclusive March Madness Club. In Spokane, players Lacey Hull from Stanford and Maryland's Katie Benson talked about the new optics.
17: One thing coming into the gym today, we were mentioning how the signage this year seems like definitely improved.
6: You know, it's great to see March Madness up on there and just equal playing field for both the women's tournament and the men's. Nailed it. Great job,
32: (laughs) (laughs) Despite Benzen's support from her Australian teammate Chloe Bibby, Stanford head coach Tara Vanderveer thinks the NCAA still hasn't nailed the important stuff. Similar branding and gift bags and food are nice, Vanderveer says, but important structural and financial differences remain. The men's tournament has a standalone and lucrative TV contract. It helps pay huge amounts to college conferences with teams in the men's tournament. The payments are called units. The women don't have that unit structure. Their tournament TV contract isn't nearly as rich since it's bundled with more than 20 other women's championship events. Vanderveer says that has to change. I think really the bottom line is... uh... You know, it's a
9: television package and it's a unit structure. And then when that happens, then we'll know it's serious.
32: NCAA critics say if the association valued women's basketball more, the women could secure that better TV package and its benefits. Certainly the potential value has been on full display this March. Brown Turner! Monday's round-of-eight thriller, a double-overtime win by Connecticut over North Carolina State, drew the fifth-largest TV audience ever for a non-Final Four women's tournament game on ESPN. Attendance was at a record high through the tournament's first two rounds, and more good lower-ranked teams has led to some true March Madness upsets. Despite her concerns, Vanderveer, whose team plays UConn in the Final Four tomorrow, is pretty bullish about the women's game.
9: We're finding our own way, we're growing our game, and I don't think we need to be in the shadow of men's basketball. I think that what we're doing right now is working.
32: But still, there's work left to do. Tom Goldman, PR News.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Many workers now have the ability to work remotely, and cities across the country have been trying to attract these workers with cash and other perks. Zaninjor and Wameka from NPR's Planet Money podcast reports on how one of those experiments is working out.
23: LaBria Jones is big on going to new places. She even started her own travel company, though usually she's thinking about far-flung destinations. That is, until a friend told her about a program in Tulsa, Oklahoma for remote workers. And it was offering money. You'll get $10,000 to come and live in this city. So, you know, that definitely piqued my interest. That $10,000 was a big incentive. So she applied to the program, which is called Tulsa Remote and a visit sealed the deal. It just felt a lot like home. I just, it felt comfortable, it felt easy. So Jones left Atlanta and moved to Tulsa last summer. Cities across the country are trying to attract workers like her. They're also offering lots of money and other perks, like free workspace, gym memberships, babysitting services, even home-cooked meals. Many of these programs popped up during the pandemic as more people could work from, well, anywhere. And that's a game changer, according to Raj Chaudhary. He's a professor at Harvard Business School who studies
10: remote work. For decades, smaller towns in our country have lost talent to the large coastal cities. And now there's an opportunity for talent to flow back and rebuild these communities.
23: Chaudhary says for years, cities competed to attract companies. They'd offer up incentives like say tax breaks, all in the hopes of getting some multi-billion dollar company to open up a headquarters or a factory and create lots of jobs. Chaudhary says now cities are trying to compete for workers. But do the incentives work?
10: Honestly, I think that initial incentive is just a headline. It, it grabs attention. Uh, what towns and communities need to do is invest in public infrastructure in your parks, in your schools, uh, in healthcare facilities in these communities. And I think if I were a mayor of one of these towns, that would be my priority.
23: Chaudhary says when he studied the Tulsa program, he saw the city invested in developing green spaces, including a 66-acre park with lots of amenities. Tulsa Remote also built up a community of 1,500 remote workers over the past four years. And Jones is a part of that. So you got $10,000 to move to Tulsa what did you spend that on i bought a house (laughs) i looked at that as a as a opportunity to get back into investing and to you know reinvest in home ownership a recent report shows for every dollar spent relocating someone the city got back 13 dollars in new income tax revenue and jobs like jones she's hired four people so i hired a copywriter to kind of revamp all of my website and all that kind of stuff Um, I've hired an operations manager. Uh, I've also hired a social media marketing person and a photographer, and they're all really great. People in the Tulsa program are supposed to stay for at least a year. 90% stay longer. Jones isn't sure how long she'll stay, but she's in no rush.
17: Zanin Jor and Wameka, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. Committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5.48, and coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Sarah Lancashire discusses her portrayal of Julia Child in HBO's new series, Julia, that and much more ahead on
15: All Things Considered. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand.
8: Here's how.
20: Just go to WBUR.org.
0: It is 63 degrees in Boston, some showers overnight, a chance of some thunderstorms, some patchy fog around, and lows in the low 50s. A mostly cloudy Friday, a chance of some showers tomorrow, and mild highs in the low 60s. Saturday, you can expect sunshine with temperatures in the mid-50s. And looking ahead to Sunday, a chance of rain and highs in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
31: Mm -hmm. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tonight on Radio Boston, there has been a bit of a food fight between Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and some North End restaurant owners over outdoor dining fees. Beyond the trash talk, there is a lot on the table here and a lot at stake. It's complicated. We'll talk about it. That's Radio Boston tonight at 10, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
12: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Kelsey Snell. Julia
13: Child is having a moment, actually another moment, In just about the last six months, America's first celebrity chef has been the subject of a stylish documentary by the makers of RBG, the inspiration for a new reality cooking show, and the subject of a new HBO Max series, Julia. The show dramatizes how Child was inspired to launch The French Chef after an appearance on a sleepy public television show about reading.
26: My guest this afternoon writes cookbooks. Yes, you heard that correctly, Cookbooks. Uh, To be frank, it would be rather disingenuous for me to say it's what I've been reading, as I have never actually read a cookbook. Maybe for today, we'll rename our little program What My Wife's Been Reading. (laughs) Uh, No, but seriously, folks, please welcome my guest, Cambridge's own Mrs. Julia Child.
13: Oh, what a lovely introduction. That's actress Sarah Lancashire playing Julia Child. Lancashire might be new to American viewers, but she's starred in some of the most popular British television shows of the last few decades, including Last Tango in Halifax and Happy Valley. Sarah Lancashire joins me now. Welcome. Hi there. It's, It's nice to be here. So you just heard me tick off all of these many ways Julia Child is still part of American culture a decade and a half after her death, but I gather you weren't quite as familiar with her.
29: Well, no, I, I wasn't living and, and being brought up in the UK. Uh, of course, Julia didn't really have um, a public persona over here. Mm. But you would have been incredibly familiar with her if you if you worked in in the culinary world, if you were a chef or a restaurateur, or if uh, even if you were uh, an amateur cook. You
13: know, that's one of the things that really struck me about this series is that we see a very different side of Julia Child. I think for a lot of Americans, I guess she's a bit of a caricature. You know, the funny voice and all of that energy. And there are all these comedy skits about her. But she seems like a real and complicated person in this portrayal. And I'm wondering, was it hard to make a cultural icon seem human? Um no completely the opposite, because the, I think the
29: starting point when you're you're creating a character real or imagined has to be their humanity and their their authenticity, and so for me that was that's very much the um the, the starting point. I never approached the series as a comedy hmm. I had seen sketches of of people playing julia or and I can see that, I can see, perfectly see why she's a, a, a target for lampooning, of course, because she has um, such a broad personality. She's
13: very funny. It just naturally. She's, she's
29: naturally very funny. Now, the piece de resistance. It's time to flame it in brandy. To flambe. Ah, let her match. Stand away. And Let her in Oh. Rather high, isn't it? I'm not sure how to quite put the old tin lid on that. Well, as uh, Lady Macbeth would say, "Out, out, damn flame! Take that!" There! But I, I really didn't want that to be the launch pad for me, because I needed to know specifically who Julia was when she was away from the cameras when she wasn't on show when she wasn't switched on um the julia behind closed doors the julia when she was with her friends when she was with paul that to me is equally as important as as trying to portray the woman in in front of the camera
13: and this is a woman who is clearly ambitious and motivated but she has no model to follow. We watch her swing between an outward confidence to kind of a private mm-hmm. insecurity that makes it almost painfully familiar as I watch it. So how did you think about that dynamic?
29: You know, she's 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 rather interesting in the sense that she – Paul and, and, and Julia had a tremendously – Interesting life, yes. And she only followed her own mantra. This wonderful phrase that she has of find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it.
20: That's great advice. (laughs) It it
29: is. It is is the most fabulous mantra. Um, And I think that's. I think she just followed her own advice really by um, approaching WGBH. Um, about doing a cooking show and of course I don't think she was taken terribly seriously at all Uh, and she she arrived and she did something which I think they had almost forgotten to do she she turned up and she entertained she wasn't Mm. afraid to entertain and she took performance to to a whole different level and I don't think she thought for one moment that it was going to be the success that it was, I think it, it's the viewers made it the success.
13: You know, there's this scene where she gets a phone call from somebody who she doesn't know and is asking a question about the details of why their recipe went wrong. It well, it's not supposed to be sweet. What brand of cognac did you use?
29: Oh, next time, just grab the brandy. No need for it to be French. No, well,
13: you're very welcome. Bye-bye. She doesn't for a moment judge or have any questions. She just answers the question and moves on. And we come to learn it's not the first time that's happened. No, because their phone number was in the book. And Julia
29: insisted that they kept their phone number in the book just in case people wanted to contact her just in case people had a problem with <laughs> with the recipe which i think is just fantastic because it just demonstrates that she this is a woman who had no ego what's at all this was not about celebrity this was julia as a teacher and she wanted to ensure that her pupils could access her
13: if they needed her well, I have to ask you about that cooking. I mean, at one point she had to make a perfect French omelet on this tiny hot plate on a tiny little table that's lower than the chair she's sitting in. And I have mm-hmm. to wonder: Were you mm. able to cook before you did this? Are you able to cook now? Well, I've raised a family, so <laughs> uh, so
29: of course. I mean, I, I'm. I don't know whether I'm old-fashioned or not, but I, I was taught to cook mm-hmm. as a as a as a as a girl, and um, my brothers were. They didn't have to worry whether I could do it or not because I because I could I'm a very practical person. I can cook an omelette, I can do a souffle, I can put a shelf up. I'm just one of those people.
13: Well, I, I have to ask before I let you go, what is the one thing that you hope that viewers learn or understand about Julia Child when they are done watching this? What's something, you know, different about her that you hope they walk away from this series understanding? Oh, I, I, I think really, I think people already
29: know. Uh, I mean, I, I think people hold her so dear in their hearts because of the qualities um, that, she, uh, that she had. Um, what I hope more than anything is that we've lived up to
13: that. Sarah Lancashire plays the title role in the new HBO Max series, Julia. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you, Kelsey. Thank you so much.
17: This is
12: All Things Considered from NPR News.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, price and coverage match limited by state law. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 63 degrees in Boston, coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. And here's a public transportation note. The MBTA is reversing plans to shut down a large section of the Blue Line for the first two weeks of April. That would have forced people going to and from Logan Airport to take the Silver Line or a shuttle bus. Now the T says the Blue Line work will be rescheduled for later this spring.
10: I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: A new study reveals a big increase in police seizures of the dangerous opioid fentanyl.
1: Fentanyl delivers a very powerful high, but it's also very brief. Sometimes this high just lasts for a few minutes. So that means people sometimes can take fentanyl 20 or 30 times a day.
0: It is Thursday, March 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get the story from southern Ukraine on volunteers helping people who fled Russian-controlled territory. Gas prices in the U.S. probably will fall as oil companies increase supply, but ramping up production takes time.
2: The main reason it doesn't happen overnight is because of the thousands of workers who were let go during the downturn, which was not that long ago. Well, they're gone, most of them.
0: And you'll get a tribute to reggaeton superstar Daddy Yankee. He says he is retiring from music. It's 6.01. Now this news.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian officials say Russians blocked the evacuation of hundreds of Mariupol residents trying to escape the war-torn south of Ukraine today. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports from Kyiv.
20: The day began with Russia having seemingly agreed to a ceasefire that would allow the flow of evacuees and humanitarian aid along the roads between the safe haven of Zaporizhia and Berdyansk, a city near Mariupol. With many still trying to escape the besieged city, Ukraine sent 45 buses to Berdyansk to bring people out, officials said. But by evening local time, Deputy Prime Minister Iryna Vereshchuk said the buses had been blocked from entering Berdyansk, meaning the 600 people waiting to board were stuck for another night. The International Committee of the Red Cross plans to lead another evacuation effort Friday if, they say, the parties can agree to terms of a ceasefire. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Kyiv.
19: The United Nations is trying to raise more than $4 billion for Afghanistan. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports the U.N. Secretary General says the money is needed soon.
31: U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is telling donors their contributions helped save lives this past winter, but he warns an already dire humanitarian situation is getting worse. Afghanistan's economy has effectively collapsed, and global food prices are skyrocketing because of the war in Ukraine.
15: This spells catastrophe for both Afghans struggling to feed their families and for our aid operations without immediate action. We face a starvation and malnutrition crisis in Afghanistan.
31: Guterres says the U.N. needs $4.4 billion. That's the largest humanitarian appeal for a single country. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A
19: CDC survey on high school students confirms previous reports on the emotional toll of the coronavirus pandemic, almost half all persistently sad or hopeless during the past year. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports more than half experienced emotional abuse by a parent or another adult at home. More
24: than one-third of
20: students responding to the survey said they experienced stress, anxiety and depression during the pandemic. 55% reported being emotionally abused by a parent or another adult at home. One in 10 said they were physically abused at home. The CDC's Dr. Catherine Ethier says some groups of teens were more likely than others to have suffered these problems.
9: 74% of lesbian, gay and bisexual youth and 63% of female youth who rep- reported emotional abuse in the home.
20: The survey also found that teens who
12: felt more supported and cared for at school were less likely to feel sad or hopeless.
20: Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. The number
19: of people filing first-time claims for unemployment benefits is up slightly, though overall claims are still at historic low levels. The Labor Department says first-time claims rose by 14,000 last week. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 550 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts State Senate has unanimously given its approval to a bill that bans discrimination based on natural hairstyles. Today's vote comes a week after the House approved the legislation. WBUR's Steve Brown has more.
8: In her very first speech as a state senator, Boston's Lydia Edwards pointed to her own natural hair and said she used to spend a lot of money to cover up what naturally came out of her own head. She said the vote tells black women how they present themselves is beautiful and they will not be expected to change their looks.
9: You must understand what systemic racism does is not just prohibit economic opportunity and jobs or prohibit you access to housing. It diminishes the soul. It diminishes yourself of who you are because of something you cannot control.
8: The bill will soon be sent to Governor Baker for his signature. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
9: It will cost you a little bit
0: less this week to fill your tank with gasoline. AAA says the average price of regular gas in Massachusetts is $4.23 a gallon. That is down two cents from this time last week. The price of diesel in the state is up 13 cents from a week ago to $5.22 a gallon. The head of a Massachusetts company that monitors wastewater for the coronavirus is calling for federal funding to expand that type of monitoring. Dr. Mariana Matus is CEO and co-founder of Cambridge-based Biobot Analytics. She testified before a congressional subcommittee today. The panel's looking at ways to prepare for the next phase of the pandemic. Dr. Matus says wastewater monitoring shows virus trends before problems show up in the population.
20: If it gave hospitals, especially in the Boston area where there's lots of awareness about this type of information, a two-week leading time to prepare for the peak. And it was equally useful to know when the peak would happen as well as to when it would end.
0: Matus is recommending that the federal government provide funding for states to conduct wastewater monitoring and standardize data collection methods advocates for transparency and government are calling on the governor's council to reinstate live streams of council meetings the governor's council stopped streaming the meetings online earlier this month counselors have cited budget and staffing challenges for the decision Jeff Foster is executive director of the group common cause Massachusetts he says keeping a live stream is a critical service to members of the public who may not be able to attend sessions in person
10: seniors mobility issues people with disabilities parents with young children, and really the list goes on. And people deserve to know what their government is doing. The Governor's
0: Council reviews judicial appointments and members of the state's parole board. It is 64 degrees in Boston, showers tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, some fog, lows in the low 50s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers,
12: Friday's highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles.
13: And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. There's disturbing new information out today about recent trends in drug use. A new study of police drug seizures shows there's been a massive increase in the traffic of pills that look like legitimate pharmaceuticals but actually contain illicit fentanyl. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi joins us. Hi, Martin.
22: Hey,
1: Kelsey.
13: So we've been hearing about the spread of fentanyl for at least a decade now. How much worse have things gotten?
1: Well, so this study was done by researchers who take part in something called the National Drug Early Warning System, and what they did is they looked at drug seizures by law enforcement, which is a usually a pretty good indirect measure of what's being sold because the cops do chemical tests on what's in the drugs, mm. and they found that over the last four years, there's been a 50-fold increase in the number of pills that contain the powerful opioid fentanyl. That's 55-0 times more now than in early 2018. And if you want raw numbers, uh, what that means is the police seized almost 10 million of these pills last year.
13: 50, that is a stunning figure. Are there any theories about why this is happening?
1: Well, uh, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it's cheap to make. It's easy to uh, smuggle. Uh, A very heavy user spends only about $70 a day uh, to consume that drug, but there's something else here. Uh, Fentanyl delivers a very powerful high, but it's also very brief. Sometimes this high just lasts for a few minutes, so that means people are consuming it a lot more frequently. Uh, We see this increased frequency in all forms of the drug, people ingesting it, smoking it, or injecting it. And I saw that for myself recently when I was shadowing a Philadelphia transit police officer. His name is Alex Byers. He works in an area with a lot of drug use, and he told me it's been grim to see how much more frequently users there are injecting themselves now as fentanyl takes over. You know, we're we're seeing a lot of individuals who need a lot of medical attention because their flesh is getting eaten away from uh, injecting themselves. Uh, almost to the point where they have to get their legs, arms amputated.
13: Wow. Has that been confirmed by drug abuse experts that people consume more fentanyl more often?
1: It has. I talked to Caleb Green, who studies drug use epidemiology at the University of Washington. He wasn't part of this study, but he told me that people sometimes can take fentanyl 20 or 30 times a day. Imagine a super steep, super herky-jerky roller coaster. That's what you're on if you're a regular user of fentanyl.
14: That's a lot worse than heroin, where you might be using four or six times a day. This study
13: highlights the growth in fentanyl pills especially, so why is that distinction significant?
1: Well, the authors of the study are worried about the fact that these pills look so much like real prescription drugs like oxycodone, and some people might assume that they're safer because they're pills, but Banta Green says you still don't know how strong one of these fake pills is going to be, and because you're taking it so often, you're just increasing your odds of an overdose, and you also have to remember that people aren't just swallowing the pills. One thing that's become really common on the West Coast, for instance, is you see people smoking, crushed pills off of sheets of tin foil. In Seattle, for example, now you see scraps of tin foil where you used to see spent needles on the ground.
13: So more frequent use, more odds of an overdose. Why would people prefer these fentanyl pills to other drugs?
1: Well, there's a lot of debate right now about whether people know what they're taking, whether um, it's still accurate to say the pills are not laced with fentanyl, as if it's being sneaked in. It is true that some users may not know what's in there, but Caleb Green told me that he's uh, surveyed drug users, and by now most of them know that they are consuming fentanyl. These blue pills are seen as fentanyl in the street. And he says the reason people take them is that fentanyl has just become so dominant in the market. It's simply the cheapest and easiest alternative for an addict so they take the pills despite the risks.
13: That's NPR's Martin Costi. thank you.
1: You're welcome.
12: One of the biggest names in Latin music has decided to call it quits at the ripe old age of 45. Saludo familia, aqui se Dar
15: Yankee, esta carrera que ha sido un maratón. Al fin veo la meta.
12: Reggaeton star Daddy Yankee announced what he called his retirement last week in a video released on social media. He also announced one last album and one final tour later this year. But, you know, retirements, they're not always clear-cut in pop music. And here to help sort all of this out for us is Felix Contreras, the host of NPR Music's Alt-Latino podcast. Hey, Felix.
15: Hey, Elsa, what's happening?
12: Can you just first put into context for us, like, why the retirement of Daddy Yankee is like a seismic event in Latin music?
15: Okay, I think first people need to understand that reggaeton could be one of the most popular forms of Latin music ever. I mean, in this age of streaming and YouTube, The streams and clicks on this music number in the billions, and Ramon Luis Ayala Rodriguez helped launch that popularity as a pioneer in developing the genre as it left its roots in Panama and made its way to his native Puerto Rico in the mid to late 90s.
12: Right, and he had like one of the first breakout hits featuring the reggaeton beat, right?
15: Yes, around 2004, after a decade as a rough underground expression of marginalized Puerto Ricans, that infectious beat broke through to the Latin mainstream by way of his track, Gasolina, and for a while, man, it was everywhere.
12: Already dancing, Felix.
15: That's what makes it so popular, man. It's a killer (laughs) dance group. It's a dance music first and foremost. And between the 2000s and 2017, Daddy Yankee's career was a steady climb of hit records on his own, tons of collaborations with other reggaeton superstars, and seemingly endless tours of, at first, Latin America, then the US, and then Europe. Millions and millions of album sales, both physical products and digital sales. And not only did he become one of the most successful Latin music pop stars out there, he also helped create a demand for reggaeton that went global.
12: Totally. And you said that Daddy Yankee, he had like all these hit records between the early 2000s and 2017. What happened in 2017? Why are you being so specific there?
15: This happened.
12: (laughs) (laughs) The song I will never get tired of, never.
15: (laughs) And a whole bunch of other people around the world. Oh my god,
12: I have choreographed so many dance moves in my head listening to this song.
15: So the crazy thing about this song's success is that Daddy Yankee was a hardcore reggaetonero and he teamed up with Luis Fonsi who was more of a pop balladeer. And what they created was really like capturing lightning in a bottle. I mean, not only did it become one of your favorite songs, it became one of the biggest selling, streamed, and viewed songs of all time in any language. In any language? In any language. It's like the biggest thing out there. It was a major, major game changer. And more importantly, it changed the concept of crossover because it was the first time that what is called the general market or the non-Spanish speaking audience adopted a song in Spanish and lifted it to anthemic proportions and i checked this week to prepare for our conversations and the youtube views on that song are up to nearly eight billion that's billion with a b right
12: so as reggaeton has gotten more and more popular as a genre like did it start showing up in other forms of music
15: Curiously, yes. I mean, that beat, there's a beat. It goes boom, da-boom, pa boom da-boom, pa boom yes. da-boom. Boom, boom. That form just really took off, and other musicians, other genres just started adding a little bit to it, Just and sometimes even the essence of it. I mean, I play in a Beatles music cover band with Latin rhythm. You, you? And I, Oh, my God! And even <laughs> I threw in a little bit of reggaeton on one of our songs. That's awesome. okay. But one of the most recent examples is from the Spanish vocalist from Spain, Rosalia. She's got a great new record out and she's got a song called Chicken Teriyaki. Check it out. Yeah.
16: I hear
12: it. I mean, it sounds like reggaeton to me.
15: Yeah, I mean, that, it's that dance beat, man. It's that, yeah. above all, that seems to always have been one of the most successful things about genres, styles, fads, etc. It's that dance beat. It's got to have a dance beat. Go back as far back as swing music in the 40s, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's dance. As as you can dance to it, yeah. it's going to get popular.
12: Totally. Okay, so you're saying Daddy Yankee wasn't just um, like a mega superstar. He became kind of this agent of cultural change.
15: Correct. I mean, it's hard not to overstate just how profoundly Despacito changed the record business and also how Latin music and culture was viewed around the world because it was no longer something exotic in a foreign language. I mean, teenagers everywhere from France to Iowa were singing that song
12: including some chinese women in new york city at the time. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo! And all of this happened before daddy yankee turned 45 years old. I mean, I am older than him. This puts my life accomplishments in total perspective now. <laughs> Tell me so, about it. <laughs> what, does, what does retirement mean for someone like Daddy Yankee?
15: Okay, he just released what he calls his last album. It's called Legend Daddy, okay? Here's a little bit of that. Hey, so you not- I mean, he's saying I am a legend, I'm back of my career, right? I mean, he's putting things in perspective from his perspective, right? Yeah. He's also set to start a massive final tour later this year. And he hasn't said much beyond that. I mean, my guess, he's gonna do whatever he wants, man. I mean, maybe a string of singles instead of dealing with the pressure of a full album, maybe a series of one-off shows instead of a grueling world tour with all the trappings of a pop extravaganza, dancers, stage stuff, all that stuff. He's created several philanthropic organizations. He's been involved with the video game creation. I mean, you know, a guy this creative just might even change the meaning of retirement.
12: Totally. Well, he can do whatever he wants. Exactly. Felix Contreras is the host of the Alt Latino podcast from NPR Music. Thank you so much, Felix.
15: Thank you. Thank you.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618, and coming up on All Things Considered, you'll get a report from southern Ukraine. In business news, the number of Massachusetts residents filing for unemployment benefits is down for the fourth straight week. Just over 3,700 residents filed claims last week. That's about 1% lower than the week prior. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down today 550 points, or 1.5%, at 34,678. The NASDAQ closed down 221 points. 1.5% at 14,220. The S&P 500 closed down 72 points at 4530.
25: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb. And Mass Farmers Markets. Farmers and farmers markets are sprouting up around the state, Find and shop your nearest market at massfarmersmarkets.org.
10: Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to wbur.org cars, and thanks.
0: It is 64 degrees in Boston, some showers around tonight, also a chance of thunderstorm, some patchy fog, and overnight lows dropping to the low 50s. You can expect mostly cloudy skies tomorrow, a chance of some showers, and Friday's highs in the low 60s. Still relatively mild on Saturday, sunshine, highs in the mid-50s, and on Sunday a chance of some rain and highs in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, working together with communities to break down barriers and prepare all people for success in their jobs and careers as employees or entrepreneurs. More online at Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Kelsey Snell.
13: Across Ukraine, people are volunteering to help in the war effort. Some are signing up for the security forces. Some are preparing meals. Others are helping people who evacuate from Russian controlled territory to find transportation and places to sleep. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from a warehouse near the front lines. It's a place where Ukrainian volunteers are doing a different kind of work.
18: On the ground floor, in what used to be a car repair shop in Zaporizhia, in eastern Ukraine, men are cutting pieces of scrap metal into strips. They then weld them together to make protective plates for bulletproof vests. A welder, who gives his name as Alexei Simchenko, describes how the pieces of metal are formed into a breastplate. Across the room, sparks fly as other people grind the edges of the plates. Vasil Busharov, who before the start of the war in February was an event planner, now coordinates the volunteers who show up at this warehouse each morning. Busharov says they're using metal from junked cars for the vests.
19: They use cars, old cars we make, and it is work. This work. Uh, I can show you, we're in all the plates and have good result.
18: They even brought in some soldiers to shoot at the body armor and make sure it works. Up a steep set of stairs from the metal shop, a dozen sewing machines surround a large work table. Here, women sew the canvas vests that will hold the steel plates. Elena Grekova, a local fashion designer who usually sells her clothes in boutiques in Kyiv, oversees producing the bulky camouflage vests. Had she ever designed a bulletproof vest before this? <laughs> I wasn't going to say so. Never. <laughs> no, only clothes and, and uh, shoes. Grekova says her team produces between 20 to 25 bulletproof vests every day. The warehouse also serves as a hub for volunteers who drive into Russian-controlled areas less than an hour from here, near the besieged city of Mariupol. They're trying to evacuate people who can't get out on their own. This place is also a distribution point for humanitarian supplies for evacuees. There are rooms filled with donated canned food, pasta, shampoo, and diapers. One problem for many of the people emerging from the intense fighting, Busharov says, is autoglass.
19: There is a special
18: division here of guys who help
20: to fix their car windows because almost all the cars that get in here
18: have broken windows. Russian forces have been bombing areas heavily before moving in with ground troops. The bombs can blow out all the windows of any car parked near the explosion. So the mechanics here help patch up the evacuees' vehicles and replace their windscreens if they can. Most of the people fleeing Mariupol and other areas that have been pounded by the Russian invasion don't stay here. Many want to get as far away from the front line as possible, some even saying their goal is to get all the way to Poland. Busharov says hundreds of volunteers show up every day at this center. Mechanics work next to business consultants packing sandbags, teachers coordinate delivery schedules.
19: Месяц, uh,
18: yeah, you can uh, see the big difference between people
20: who are afraid and people who are eager to help. And for this time I have seen so many people that will, they will probably become my best friends in the future. They are doing incredible things here.
18: For him, he says, this war has brought out the best in a lot of people. Jason Bobian, NPR News, in eastern Ukraine.
12: High gas prices have everyone from truckers to politicians demanding more domestic oil production. While drilling is up, oil production in this country is still down from three years ago. But as Frank Morris of Member Station KCUR reports, turning that around just isn't going to be as easy as some might have you believe.
7: Oil is expensive now, but Dick Schremer, president of Bear Oil near Tiny Peck, Kansas, says there was a time early in the pandemic when he literally could not give the stuff away.
21: The oil that they took that day from us, they charged us $38 a barrel to take our oil.
7: Of course, nobody knew how long the losses would go on and domestic production plunged 20% as small companies folded or cut staff. Companies also shut down active wells, nearly 5,000 in Kansas alone. Schremer's standing next to one of them today in a field south of Wichita. The oil thousands of feet below this ancient pump jack is now worth more than $100 a barrel, but pumping it out will take time and lots of money. You know, this well probably cost me $12,000 to get up and running. Idle wells corrode. For most, to come back into production, they'll need repairs, and the price of hardware and chemicals used to get oil out of the ground has shot up along with the price of crude. I just ordered a
21: new truck loaded pipe out of Houston, and that one Truckload of two inch tubing it cost me $75,000. Last year, that would have probably cost me $25,000 to
7: $35,000. That's big money to small operators like Dick Schremer. While big players like ExxonMobil and BP operate wells producing hundreds or thousands of barrels a day, hundreds of small companies work on the margins running low producing stripper wells in states like Kansas, Ohio, and Texas. And Mickey Thompson, past president of the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association, says many of those companies face
2: a serious challenge, finding employees. The main reason it doesn't happen overnight is because of the thousands of workers who were let go during the downturn, which was not that long ago. Well, they're gone, most of them. And those remaining are putting in a lot of overtime.
7: Close to a riverbank near Oxford, Kansas, two men labor to bring a 1940s-era well back into production. Rank crew, reeking of skunk and diesel fuel, sloshes out of an old pipe, splattering the workers as they toil in the mud, slinging heavy, four-foot-long wrenches and manhandling 200-pound sections of pipe.
21: Everything's heavy and dirty and slimy.
7: Dick Schlemmer says workers like these guys are a vanishing
21: breed. This is pretty tough work. It's out in all the elements and the heat and the cold and work,
7: you know, eight, 10, 12 hour days. And there are just a lot of people who don't want to do that anymore. And it makes for lots of delays. Robert Wagner, who runs Dan D. Drilling in Lamont, Oklahoma, has 20 semi-trucks outfitted with all the equipment it takes to drill new oil wells. Of those 20 rigs he's able to staff, just two, two. And then only partially.
14: And so we're not able to meet the demand. It's not just us here in Lamont, Oklahoma. It's everybody in Odessa and everybody in Louisiana. All of them are having the same problem.
7: So, oil companies wanting to drill new wells have to wait. And while regulation isn't much of a hurdle in this part of the country, financing can be. And Mickey Thompson says there's one other thing checking a rush to ramp up production common sense
2: because there's no guarantee that the price of oil is going to be anywhere near where it is today next month so they spend all this money and then the price drops could drop dramatically
7: domestic production is still down about 10 percent from its all-time peak in 2019 but it's on the upswing this well chugging away just beyond a leafy front yard in Bell plain kansas came back online this year producing a paltry barrel and a quarter of oil a day, enough to make about 25 gallons of gasoline. The U.S. Department of Energy forecasts that domestic oil producers will reach 2019 production levels sometime in the summer of next year. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. You'll get the story on how a small flour mill in Pasadena is dealing with the disruption in the global grain supply. You'll also hear about school districts pushing back high school start times to later in the morning. That and more just ahead on Marketplace. It's 64 degrees in Boston, showers and a chance of thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex,
25: committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Forester and Outback Wilderness Edition. Available now, citysidesubaru.com.